you would just remain seated this morning as we read. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter, and rock poured out for me streams of oil. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth, and the voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard it, it called me blessed. When the eye saw, it approved. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. But now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I, whose father I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock, What could I gain from the strength of their hands, men whose vigor is gone? Through want and hard hunger they gnaw the dry ground by night in waste and desolation. They pick saltwort and the leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. They are driven out from human company. They shout after them as after a thief. In the gullies of the turrets they must dwell, in the holes of the earth and of rocks. Among the bushes they bray, under the nettles they hung, huddled together, a senseless and nameless brood, they have been whipped out of the land. But now I have become their song. I am a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Because God has loosed my cord and humbled me. They have cast off restraint in my presence. Oh, my right hand, on my right hand the rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help them. As though through a wide breach they come. Amid the crash they roll on. Terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind. And my prosperity has passed away like cloud. And now my soul is poured out within me. The days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force my garment is disfigured. It binds me, binds about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death into the house appointed for all living. 
Yet does not one who one in a heap of ruin stretch out his hand and in his disaster cry for help? Did not I weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I waited for light, darkness came. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze upon gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my steps have turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows from me be rooted out. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. If my land has cried out against me, and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten, eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and let foul weeds instead of barley. The words of the Job are ended. The word of the Lord. in terms of finishing our Job series. And so it's time to start to summarize and to draw some conclusions. And Job actually helps us in this because, as Zach said earlier, chapters 29 through 31 are Job's own summary of his case. Uh, all three chapters are very tightly knit together, and they are all uh, they're crafted with one purpose, which is to demand of God a hearing. Job wants his only hope at this point, and really what has been his only hope all along, is somehow, if a case will be had, if uh, a trial will occur, and uh, the merits of his situation are heard, then he will be vindicated. Uh, God will be forced to concede that Job has suffered undeservedly, because he's a righteous man. And as a result, uh, Job will be reestablished. And this is what Job has hinged his hope upon but uh, throughout, and uh, the book is, is certainly created a longing for God to show up. And he hasn't shown up today. He's not showing up in these chapters. This is what Job keeps seeking. He keeps asking for, and this is his final appeal, that a hearing would be had. Uh, next week, the odd figure of Elihu pops up uh, out of nowhere. And then God will finally show up as we conclude uh, the, books, uh, the book from two weeks. But the question for us is, Job petitions for this trial is to move into that tension. Is this a fair expectation or a reasonable expectation? Or what do we have to learn from the expectation? 
that Job would, in one sense, want to put God on trial. That's not been a popular idea. In fact, theologians for the last probably 200 years have lamented the Western notion that we would put God in the dock, that we would put him on trial. Uh, But is that not exactly what Job is asking? That there would be a trial and that his case would be heard against God, that God indeed would be put in the dock. To begin to to think about this frustration and whether or not we we should engage it or condemn it and what God's going to do with it as the book concludes, we might think of an analogy. Uh, If I were to tell you that this week uh, my kids were at a bunch of parties and ate a bunch of junk food and we came home and I said, listen kids, uh, one more cookie each and then you're done. If you want something else, you're still hungry, you can have an apple or a banana or some nuts Uh, but we're done with junk food. And uh, I leave, and uh, their uncle comes in and says, "Uh, you know, is that what your dad said? Uh, He didn't really mean that. Uh, He he meant that about candy. But the cookie has butter, has eggs. Uh, Those are good things for you. That's healthy. Uh, You can eat some more. Uh, Or you should. And uh, two of my kids said, well... I don't think that's a good idea. But one kid says, yeah, that makes complete sense. And decides to eat. And so I come back in and I realize there's, there's more cookies gone than should be. And I realize that one of my children has eaten a cookie. And I said, did I not tell you not to eat the cookie? And they said, yes, you told me not to eat the cookie. Right? I said, well, okay. Uh, you're banished forever. Our relationship is done. You are sent into exile and pain and suffering will mark your days, and uh, that's it, right? And we get, you know, you have reactions between giggling and calling CPS to, to have me evaluated, but it becomes a little more uncomfortable because that's our story. Isn't that the story of the garden? Oh. So do we not have some degree of frustration? Some degree of what is God up to when he subjects the world to futility. This is what Job on a personal level, but I think Job is very much intended both both to be read on a personal note, but on a, a frustration with the world at large being subjected to futility. Right? When we wrestle with that, what does it mean to wrestle with God over that state of affairs? Job says... Uh, you know, I, I'm suffering in ways that are disproportionate to what I've done. And so I would like a hearing. And how does he decide that? How does he come, you know, Job's a son of Adam just like we are. Right? How does he come to those conclusions and what are we to learn from it? So in evaluating Job's uh, request for trial, I'd like to work backwards today because I think it will be a little bit more clear by doing so. And so we start at the culmination of his argument, which occurs in uh, 31, uh, verse 35, really. And then uh, I'll read through verse 37, though, if you look there with me. Uh, Chapter 31, verse 35. Uh, This is kind of the pinnacle for where Job has been heading for the last uh, three chapters. It says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Now, Job is not saying, Oh, I just wish God would actually hear me. Uh, the language he's using is he, he wants a legal representative. This is the word that would be used for, if you think about King David's time, 
you know, you had appealed to the king for justice, but the country was too large for David to hear all the cases. And so he would appoint someone who was vested with his authority to be at the city gate. And you would go to that person, and he would have the authority to distribute the king's justice on the king's behalf. And this is what Job is asking for. I want someone who can hear my case and has the authority of the Almighty to deliver justice on my behalf. That's who he wants to hear him. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. All throughout, the question has been, is Job really done some kind of sin that warrants this kind of punishment, this kind of suffering? And Job here at the end is saying, if only I had the indictment, right? In essence, he's saying, all right, if I've done something wrong, let it be written down and shown to me, and I will stand up and disprove it because I know that I am righteous. And he says, uh, as a prince, I would approach him, right? Without fear, because I know that I am innocent of whatever would be required to warrant this level of, of suffering. So this is all legal language in ancient Hebrew. Job is demanding uh, a trial or certain setting uh, the case to rights between himself and between God. And at the basis, the suffering that I have received is disproportionate, is unwarranted by my life of righteousness. Have you ever wrestled with the nature of, isn't suffering disproportionate? Don't you know some righteous people who suffer with chronic illness? or with a terminal disease, or uh, suffer horrible hardship in their family. Or if we took a global perspective and we looked at suffering, right, with, apart from God's revelation, I would think that I, I would have to conclude that God has something particularly against the poor. Because that's where many of the worst things happen. Those are the people without options and where there is the most suffering. Suffering is, at least from our very limited perspective, uh, disproportionate. It's hard to understand. And this is what Job's world is wrestling with. If you're supposed to be blessed for obedience and cursed for disobedience, Job's suffering doesn't make sense. There's no way to process it. And I, I feel that frustration. The frustration of suffering being inexplicable uh, when we confess things like God is good and He's for us and He desires our good. How do I understand? I look at Aleppo. I look at all the Syrians suffering so dramatically under Assad's regime. I look at the carnage of ISIS. I look at the flooding in Louisiana. Right? Everywhere you turn, you see, you see suffering. You say, what, God, what is going on? Why is the suffering being distributed in this way? And this is what Job is struggling with from a personal level. Why is this being distributed to me in this way? I haven't deserved it. And so Job, in response to that, is asking for a hearing. This is his response. But as you struggle with suffering, whether it is in your own life or whether it is in the life uh, as you engage the world and think about the suffering globally, do you seek a hearing? Do you go to God and say, God, I don't understand this. And this is very frustrating and I'm angry. And what, what are you doing? Do you have a real conversation with him? I think one of the most pointed questions that we must struggle with at this point in our consideration of the book of Job is this. Do you love God enough to be angry with Him? 
And I would assert to you that if you aren't angry with God ever, you don't love Him. The two go hand in hand. And this is one of the things that Job demonstrates to us. And there's lots of reasons that we feel uncomfortable with approaching God in this way. Right? We might say to ourselves, Oh, well, God is God. Is God. And you just don't walk up and be angry or frustrated with God. He's good and perfect and righteous, and we approach Him with reverence, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We would affirm all of this. And so I don't really engage Him with uh, this frustration. I will just kind of wait and, uh, and tuck it in. And in this, right, we're a little bit um, like Ariel, right? the little mermaid. She gets so angry at her father who doesn't want her to engage uh, the things of, of humans, right? that finally she uh, will go and escape and seek an alternative way to do what she wants to do and makes a deal with the sea witch. My point in that analogy is as long as we aren't, with all of this frustration and anger, that in part may be sinful and in part may be very real and legitimate questions to ask God, if they aren't actually vented toward God, they eventually will be vented somewhere else. Right? You can't simply uh, medicate or handle those alone in any capacity. They're questions that only God can take up. Others of you say, well, I'm not Job. Right? Job is a pretty righteous guy. Right? Perhaps one of the most righteous persons ever portrayed in Scripture. Maybe if I was as righteous as Job then I might assume that kind of voice with God. But Job acknowledges that he has sin. Job is a son of Adam. And this, I fear, we're a little bit like Rapunzel, entangled, right? Who can't question Mother Gothel. Every time she wants to get out of the tower, Mother Gothel says how much she sacrificed for her and for her good. And so Uh, she never feels like she can actually have a real conversation to the extent when she finally gets out of the tower, she essentially has a panic attack for disobeying Mother Gothel Gothel because she uh, feels like she's become unworthy of the love that Mother Gothel portrays. And so we think, oh, I'm not worthy to have this conversation with God. But again, what drives that conversation, that frustration and anger, And the brokenness of the world will go somewhere. As it drives Ariel out and it drives uh, Rapunzel out, it will drive you out and away from God if you don't actually pursue a loving relationship with God in which he can take that up. This is what Job remarkably desires, even though uh, he has suffered. And so we look at Job, and as we're wrestling with whether we can even request or think about this kind of hearing with God, We may say, well, why does Job think he deserves such a hearing from God? Right? What makes Job uh, think that this is a good idea for him? Well, we uh, need to be reminded of the degree to which Job is suffering, which is what he takes up in chapter 30. If you look at chapter 30, Job is suffering from all quadrants. Verses 9 and 10. And now I have become their song. I am a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. These are his friends. These are the people that he served. This is the community over which he was ahead. And now they make him, as we talked in weeks past, the scapegoat for all of their frustration, and they assume he is sinful. 
But it's not really the community that most wounds Job. It's God himself. Look at chapter 30, verse 19. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me with the might of your hand. You persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it. You toss me about in the roar of the storm. You know, the language uh, that Job uses of God is kind of, it reminds me of when, you know, a boy decides, I wonder what would happen when I tie a firecracker to my G.I. Joe. Let's see. This is Job's, you've cast me into the wind. You've thrown me into the mire. You've basically blown me up to see what would happen. And I am about to be expired. There is no respite for Job. And he finds himself in this place utterly alone. Uh, He is deserted by everyone. And he feels absolutely deserted by God who is silent to this point to his request to be heard. And I think that raises for us the real question of discipleship, which ultimately at the end of the day is, will you seek God alone and will he be enough for you alone? When deserted and even when he is silent, will you continue to pursue him? To have faith that he will show up and even in his silence there is purpose. This is what Job models for us. He is, he is the, apart from Jesus, the greatest exemplar in the scriptures of having this kind of faithfulness and pursuing real relationship with God. And as he laments his suffering, we think, man, what? How could Job suffer so much? And maybe there's a part of you that thinks, well, maybe, maybe he did deserve it. Which this voice occasionally pops up into my head as I'm reading the book of Job. And I chuckle because I know that voice pops up because it would be so, it would make the book so much easier. Right? It's like if you're trying to balance this hard math equation and you just can't figure it out. And so if you just erase part of it and do the rest of the equation, then it works out. And you're like, oh, that's much simpler. If Job would just show up at the, at the end of the book and say, all right, guys, let, I'll be frank now, right? I've been swindling from the community. I've been having some relationships, and yes, I have sinned. And you'd be like, oh, great. That makes the book much easier to handle. Uh, but that's not what happens at all. In fact, Job goes on at great length asserting his righteousness, Uh, At the end of his case, if you look at chapter 29, verse 14. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Then I thought I shall die in my nest and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters with the dew all night on my branches. My glory fresh with me and my bow ever new in my hand. What's Job saying? I was clothed in righteousness. Justice was a turban to me. Why? Because he was for the blind, for the lame, for the needy. He stood against those who were committed to unrighteousness and protected the oppressed. He sought not only the glory of God, but was righteous in the way that he stood up for his neighbors. And he thinks as a result, 
that he will be blessed. Right? His nest, he will die in his nest, and his days shall multiply by the, as the sand. As a result of his righteousness, when Job looks back, he says, Yeah, I thought my days were guaranteed. Maybe suffering is exactly what Job needed to realize that he loved God more than he knew for what it gave him, rather than for actually loving God for who God is and knowing him uh, in that personal way. So if Job, though, is utterly righteous, we return again and again to the problem, is he punished unfairly? Does he deserve to be treated like this? And what is the point of his suffering in the midst of it? And another question, if punished unfairly, why doesn't Job just curse God and die? What's the point of hanging on? If God is not showing up and hearing him, if he's not going to offer a trial, if God just allows this to happen, what is Job hoping for? Why doesn't he just conclude that God probably isn't just and isn't worthy of worship, and therefore to curse him will end his suffering and it will be over? But he won't. And he won't because what he desires most, what he misses most, is the God that he had known. And in one of the most beautiful sections, look at 29, verses 1 through 5a, when Job looks back, he begins his whole appeal in 29 through 31 by looking back to the days before his suffering, before God had set upon him. And this is how he remembers it. And he doesn't remember first his kids. He doesn't remember first his wealth. He doesn't remember first his physical health. Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. As I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me. God, or Job, misses most intimacy with God. He longs for the relationship that he once had, and this is why he continues to pursue it, even in the midst of almost having nothing to hang his hat on in terms of expectation, of reasonableness to expect that God is going to show up in a loving way and handle everything that's occurred. Still, he seeks him and he asks for this meeting and he says, I want, I want a trial. I want to meet God. I want him to be present. This trial is the way that God, Job sees his uh, relationship with God being restored, it being healed. And what if, I mean, on it, one hand, it's a ridiculous idea, right? A human person demanding that God show up to give account for his actions in this world. This is nothing, uh, nothing different than the creature demanding that the Creator show up and give an account. This is Job's demand. And that he be put on trial. And Job is saying, you have punished me unjustly. Right? You, in one sense, from the law, you have contradicted your own word. And violated your own standard. It's a ludicrous idea, but what if God humored that idea? What if God said, okay, I will show up and I will allow you, humanity, to put me on trial. And I will allow you to pass sentence and we'll see what happens. And isn't that just what happens? Doesn't God show up in the flesh 
and go on trial before Pilate and is sentenced to death as the crowd shouts, crucify him, crucify him. One of the things that Job points forward to and that we have to be brought into is to understand that uh, we share in that anger and frustration. We share deeply in it. Uh, our hearts are dispossessed to love, uh, are uh, predisposed, thank you, predisposed, right, to love ourselves and to hate God from the beginning. But when we enter into the futility of this world and its suffering and experience that frustration, in part it must be, it must be pointed toward God for the one who subjected the world to futility. If you're pointing those questions or that anger or frustration anywhere else, it's pointed in the wrong direction because only one person can give account for the world in which we exist. And it's by entering that very conversation in which you realize, God, I am so, so angry and so frustrated about my story or about the suffering in the world that, yes, I would like for you to give account. I would like for you to explain to me aspects of this story I feel this when I look at Aleppo, or I feel this when I struggle with something theologically. You know, we, we sometimes don't think very deeply about our theology, but if we do, right, we, everyone is born into darkness, we would confess they're totally alienated from God in their sin and have no hope of repentance except God visits upon them, right, uh, the Spirit to wake them up. But God doesn't wake everyone up. So there's an entire group of people who are born in sin that was just, they were born into. It wasn't a sin of, uh, of action on their part, for which they are held accountable, and they cannot repent unless they're woken up. But they're not woken up, so they can't repent, but they're still going to suffer eternally for sins committed in time, which is me, equivalent to me, sentencing one of my kids to 80 years hard labor for eating an extra cookie. That doesn't bother you? No frustration at that? I've got lots of frustration at that. So the question becomes, what am I going to do with that? Right? I can say, well, God is big and I can't approach him. And so I'm just going to uh, say yes and worship and not engage him, really. Right? And then what's going to happen? I'm going to end up uh, like Ariel and make a deal with the sea witch. Or I'm going to end up like Rapunzel and say, well, I'm not worthy. I'm not righteous. Who am I? I'm a worm. I can't question God. And I'll end up like uh, Rapunzel, running off in some other direction. Right? But if I actually enter into that place and say, yes, I'm so frustrated, and I'm so angry and so hurt, and I don't know why you would allow such pain, as I pray week after week for some of you who are in dire circumstances, and I don't know why you would be visited with such suffering, I'm frustrated. I say, God, why won't you show up? And as I engage that, I realize that there is great anger in my heart. I say, God... You know, for, some, for, the, for the pain and suffering in this world, really, there's part of me that you should be held accountable. And he says, yes, um, I understand that. And haven't I shown up? And um, held accountable may not be the right way to approach it, but have I not shown up and shared in its remedy? Have I not shown up and engaged that suffering and pain to be part of its healing? And it's at that point where I realized that part of my heart, you know, we have this, American Christianity has this terrible tendency to look at the crucifixion and say, those Pharisees, those, those Jews, which is, 
pretty much the starting point of most of anti-Semitism in history. But that aside, right, we say, we wouldn't have done that. Oh, yes, we're sinful. We've got some issues. But really, right, God is quite blessed to have us as part of his kingdom. We're not like those people. And you need to realize, no, you don't know the anger and hatred in your heart. You swung the hammer. You broke his body and you shed his blood and you would be delighted to do so because you would hold him to account. And it's only when you get to that point and you, you have this conversation with him and he says, yes, I know and I forgive you. That is the point at which you begin to taste the gospel. And it's like, it reminds me of Brave, right? Four in one Sunday. I just blew your mind, right? <laughs> But it's the story of Merida, who uh, is mad at her parents because they want to marry her off to some Scottish prince or something to unite the clans. And so Merida goes to the witch and makes a deal uh, to change her fate, but she doesn't realize what's involved in changing her fate is cursing her mother to change her into a bear. And so the story goes on, and she she feels bad about the curse and tries to undo it. But it's only in the end where her mother as a bear faces this other person who was a long time ago changed into a bear and essentially lays down her life defending Merida that her heart actually breaks. And she realizes the love of her mother at that moment. And there's something in, realize, you know, I mean, there's a, a wonderful echo of the gospel that in pursuing the change of our own fate, we would enact a curse. And that curse will ultimately only be remedied by God taking on flesh. But there's something about being at the cross and realizing your participation and realizing that he says, I forgive you, that breaks your heart and allows you to taste the gospel and frees you in a completely different way. You only get there if you are willing to listen to the book of Job and hear his voice that invites you to get angry, invites you to be frustrated with God, not to cur- the brilliance of Job is that he never curses God. He never has contempt for him. He pursues relationship with him by being angry. Now realize if you don't do that, right? Just like Ariel or just like Rapunzel, your words may still praise him. And you may show up here every Sunday. But you're going to pursue sin. And in your sin, you curse God and wish that you would die. Do you want to know him and his love? Wrestle with him. Enter into him and be honest and express your anger and frustration, not with cursing him, but with a longing, with a desire to have him show up and to know him more intimately. Let's ask him to meet us. Father, you are mysterious beyond reckoning. And uh, Job is mysterious in many ways beyond reckoning. And yet you give us this picture of what it means to, uh, to pursue you in the midst of a broken world. How easy it is for us to turn to the right or to the left and to, uh, to cloak our fear and our frustration in uh, pretend righteousness. Would you forgive us? And Holy Spirit, would you give us the kind of, uh, not only boldness that Job has, but the kind of faith 
that Job has. That even when all is lost, our only hope is in you. Our only hope is in you uh, showing up. Thank you for uh, allowing us to be on this side of the cross in which we have seen you show up in the flesh. And would uh, you place our faith there in such a regard? Yes, knowing that we hate you and knowing that part of our uh, broken hearts have desired your death, that it is in that death uh, and the resurrection that you offer us resurrection, a new life here and now. Would you help us to live in that new life and to pursue you, um, to pursue you as one who is utterly confident in your love and your goodness, even in the midst of our suffering. We ask for your grace in this, in Christ's name. Amen.